One, two, three, clap. Almost got it. Welcome to our mid-roll lives. My name's Yves Sinclair. And I'm Cameron Lalana. Tagline goes here. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to our mid-roll live. My name is Cameron Lalana, and as always, I am joined by Yves St. Clair. Dead silence. And today we're gonna <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> today we're going to delve into a subject which I have a lot to say about, and Yves also has a fair amount to say about, but once then is it's it it's like the last election. You're gonna have all the electoral votes <laughs> and I'll have the population. <laughs> I didn't know where I was going with that. <laughs> no, no, that's fair. I, I'm the Donald Trump of this podcast right now. <laughs> um, so today we're going to no! talk. No. <laughs> no. I mean, you're we're, we're going to continue with the metaphor. Um, today we're going to talk about a Russian film from the 1990s called Brat, translated in English, it means yes. brother. Uh, you may or may not have previously heard of this film. Uh, you may have heard of some of its influences, Brat and Brat 2, the follow-up, which was... They're both their own individual film. Maybe we'll talk about that one in the future. But especially Brat 2 heavily influenced American media and especially heavily influenced Grand Theft Auto 4. Uh, Brat 2 mm. is about a, a ex-Russian soldier coming to America to help out his cousin or help out his brother, you know, who has gotten involved in gang stuff. GTA is about an ex-Eastern European man who's involved in the military coming to America to help out his cousin. You can see the overlap. There's also a lot of visual stuff. Mm. That's not the point. But that is a really interesting film because it was made at a very particular time in Russian history. Um, for those of you who aren't super familiar, I'll do a quick history lesson. I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible because, unfortunately, my degree is kind of in this, so I could say a lot. Um, so in the 1990s, uh, specifically in 1992, uh, because of various actions uh, according related to Perestroika and Glasnost, which you've probably heard about in history class, uh, the Soviet Union ended up dissolving. And at that time, the president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, uh, ended up taking control of a fairly large piece of land. However, because the Russian government is not the same as the Soviet government, there was a problem. And that problem was all the old supply lines, which was based on the 15 Soviet republics, their interconnected nature, suddenly broke down. So you have a breakdown of goods, of supplies, of work. Previously, the Soviet government guaranteed employment, housing. Uh, and now you have um, the new Russian government. Uh, Yeltsin was a pro, was a liberal reformer, and he was guided by other liberal reformers, notably um, uh, Anatoly Gaidar, and another liberal econ economist who wanted to introduce uh, what, we, what we term shock therapy, so introducing capitalism to Russia. Uh, they were really influenced by Poland. Poland had a very successful shock therapy, um, had an uh, implementation of capitalism, and they were doing quite well, actually, very early on, um, which is where they took a lot of their model from. But for various reasons, liberalization of Russia really, really didn't work out. In fact, it basically mm -hmm. just the old uh, people who ran the operation who ran various industries ended up basically just owning those industries despite the efforts of the Russian government to do otherwise, which were not super strong. So you had a, a system which basically replicated old inequalities, but now in a capitalist system. So it was much more obvious and it was much harder to exist with those inequalities because at least in the Soviet Union, you were more or less guaranteed housing, you know, food. And now in this new world, you were not guaranteed housing. Food was hard to find. Um, although there were lines before there was like a system to how the lines worked and there were goods and you could, you, there was a system that people understood. Now there was just not these things. And so the mm. 1990s in Russia, in every Soviet, former Soviet Republic, it was, life was difficult, but of course it was also difficult in Russia. So you have the film Brat, which emerges from this era of deprivation, of, of just lack of hope. And, I think literature from this area is really interesting because it deals with people, who, uh, people who are basically broken, who were a world power and are now just just trying to survive. And that's an incredible, and it's an incredibly sad place to be. So you see that reflected in in, in Brat. Soviet 
um, literature was, of course, driven by the theory of socialist realism, which was simultaneously supposed to show the ideal society and also how the Soviet Union had achieved that. And when you get to late Soviet literature and post-Soviet literature, you begin to see writers dealing with the fact that they live now and even somewhere before that in kind of a shitty situation. <laughs> so Brat does not live in an ideal version of Russia. Brat lives in a very dirty, real version of Russia. And um, so should we, do you want to do a quick recap of, of the film itself? Yeah, sure. Um, okay. And, you know, when you were talking about that, that just made me think about how could you argue that, like, post-Soviet Russia, in a way, is, like, what, realistically speaking, we're already sort of, in a way, experiencing with post-capitalist society in the United States and the sort of really strange mm. times we're, we're entering into now. Obviously, maybe not to the same degree as lawlessness is within in Russia after post-Soviet stuff, but... Doesn't feel too yeah. different in terms of like how the common man is or common person is getting uh, ripped. Yeah, I mean, you could say right that that's now. like the the end result of of in a certain sense, the government was active, so you couldn't quite call it like a, a libertarian capitalist state. But the the government was really in bed with a lot of <laughs> the people who were running the government had very close ties to business. Um, and so to the extent that there has been a state in which it was kind of run by business, it was that Russia in the 1990s is very much that was the state that was like the closest you probably got into like a libertarian capitalist state because the oligarchs really mm. kind of kind of ran things. And that was part of the reason why actually liberalization went so badly, because the in the mid 90s, when Yeltsin was trying to work on these reforms, he was consulting the oligarchs and the oligarchs were the ones who had done a lot of crimes to get what they had or had played the system very well. And so you had policy, which was essentially set by them, which is why you have things like um, probably one of the um, biggest transfers from state power to private power, maybe in world history, uh, was this particular deal in which the Soviet government needed to pay for their running out of money. So they're like, OK, we're going to we're going to take loans from these oligarchs and we're going to give you property and um like as, as collateral. And it, theoretically, it was supposed to be at, on an open bid. So anyone anywhere in the world is supposed to have been able to uh, bid for loans uh, in exchange for collateral of state assets. And mm -hmm. um, it was a really shady process. So basically, no one like in the world wanted to get involved with it except for Russian businessmen. So in that auction, that like day one, they managed to snatch up literally billions of dollars of like state property, including actually probably some things which are worth trillions of dollars. Some oil producing industries are really, really valuable to the Russian government. Um, I, I, I forget the names now, but like Russia today is one of the lead exporters of oil in the world. And mm -hmm. that, that was suddenly all transferred from government hands to like the hands of two or three people. If you can like imagine <sighs> that like the second largest oil producer in the world being in their control of just a handful of people. And when predictably, the Russian government was not able to pay back their loans, so the, private, the businessmen were able to keep the collateral. So that's one of the like, biggest transfers of wealth from, from state power to private power um, that's maybe ever happened. Oh and like, that's, that's an example of how powerful the oligarchs were in the 1990s. That's not true anymore, and maybe that gets in discussion of why Putin is so popular, or at least was, or maintained some semblance that Putin was able to fight the power of the oligarchs, but that's a discussion mm. for a different day. Yeah, I, I do naturally want to like get more into it and maybe you can answer this really fast uh oligarchs were they existing during soviet time or were they just in the shadows uh, yes and no so did oligarchs have power and then in in the soviet union usually oligarchs were powerful people yes but they weren't oligarchs they tended to people be people who had control of various industries not control they're like were high in the government or um in the in the Late Soviet period, Gorbachev passed something that was called the Law on Cooperatives, which basically allowed some level of private industry. It was called a cooperative in, in their parlance. Mm -hmm. And what some of them did, they were, a lot of them were not like wealthy people themselves, but they were well connected. So something a lot of early oligarchs did where they were people who had connections with the intelligence services. So they used the Law on Cooperatives to make what you could least loosely call a bank. And then security people and security services who kind of saw the way things were going started moving funds from the security services and the security services in the Soviet Union were always the wealthiest among the wealthiest industries. 
um, because that's where all the money was really going. So they started transferring that to these banks from offshore accounts. You start, it was kind of like a robbery of, of state funds, again, into their own private bank accounts. And wow. because uh, uh, then using these early, these early quote unquote banks, um, they were able to gain a lot of power, a lot of uh, transfer, like get money into a usable form. And so that gave these people who worked in intelligence agencies money so they could operate. And it also gave the people who are running the banks uh, a lot of capital themselves and a lot of influence and power. And that often led to when the world was coming down around them, they were the ones who had the money to, in order to be able to purchase property when it went out into the market. Or mm. when there was a particular, you call it voucher privatization, is how it initially happened. And that was theoretically supposed to give everyone like the ability to buy a certain amount of industry, but a lot of people ended up selling their vouchers or not using them or, you know, so if you were, they didn't exist, but usually oligarchs for people who had a certain amount of influence beforehand. Okay. This topic just makes me want to even, it's hard to not (laughs) want to get more into this. Uh, Is there another question I can ask really fast? Uh, So is... How, in your opinion, I guess this is just like a good way to end it in a way. In your opinion, did the U.S. intentionally try to end like Soviet communist culture in Russia and then let the country itself kind of become the problem that it has become in a way? Or I shouldn't call Russia a problem, but. Mm. I mean, were they trying to end the Soviet Union? Yes. Did they have involvement in the actual fall of the Soviet Union? Maybe. Um, if you could point to anything, you could point it to a bloated industry, which was deeply imbalanced and had a really strong focus on defense, but very little focus on consumer products. People were generally pretty unhappy. Um, and they did not have good products. And um, even 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 in the latter years, Gorbachev made fun of this system because he, in his early years, he was involved with people who were doing studies. And uh, one really famous line is is from Gorbachev is that um, he says like, "Why we have a commission on women's pantyhose?" And, and you know he's the comment is like, why do we have a whole like council of people trying to figure out how to make pantyhose? And you really just need to like, just make them. We don't need a council governing, you know, the, the production of that. And so it was a really bloated, inefficient system. Um, and it, it did. It's, everything it's, had to be communist. Or... Yeah, it, it's I could I could just, sure. I think Soviet industry is really interesting. I could spend a long time talking about the particulars of it. Mm. But the, the short it's if you are thinking about it, it's more complex than you think. And it actually had a lot of upsides. But those upsides came with necessary downsides, and it also theoretically led to the end of the Soviet Union because um, some people say that it was the like the arms race that made it really uh, that had the Soviet Union spending so much on the military, which made it really bloated, which did lead to the collapse of their system, which I think is a reasonable argument, but I don't particularly buy into it. I think it was a deeper fault of Soviet production itself that kind of led to its downfall. So, did the U.S. Try to, to to upset them. Yeah, I doubt they wanted the country to fall because that's a level of instability I don't think they were comfortable with. I mean, like in the 1960s, the Soviet Union and China almost went to war. And Richard Nixon, uh, keep in mind, the U.S. had no had had no relationship with the uh, the country of China since they had become a communist state. They intervened and threatened the Soviet Union with war if they went to war with China. So I think the United States wow. several times has like prized stability very very highly, even even if it means taking actions they might consider weird or contradictory so i don't think you could say they wanted the fall of the soviet union because that was a weird thing for them and americans were mostly surprised when it happened but they were very quickly able to take advantage of the situation and really did try to influence the government going forward Mm. so they did try to play it to their advantage whether or not that really happened uh, i think is is (laughs) well i don't think it really worked out to the american government's advantage that's such an interesting idea because I think, you know, my natural inclination of how the history of the end of the Soviet Union is taught within the U.S. high school system, because I didn't ever take history classes in college, unfortunately, it sort of just kind of lumped into a very basic, like, well, Reagan told them to take down the wall. <laughs> right, Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, God, I'm going to Russian accent, Mr. Gorbachev, take down that wall. And the, like his his voice was so powerful that two years later... For an unrelated reason, the wall came down. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's very classically like American-style history of, like, we we pretend, like, everything we, that happens that we wanted to happen was because of us, and everything that bad has ever happened was not because of us, yeah. so to speak. So, yeah. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> but anyways, Brat. <laughs> brat. Yeah. So, do you want to talk through the, the plot a little bit? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, let me know if I uh, miss anything. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, since you've seen it twice. But basically, you this movie starts off with this stocky young male character whom I forget the name of personally, but, you know, he... Uh, Daniel. Daniel. Um, mm-hmm. He is walking in a forest in a very, like, kind of sepia-looking place. There's some brick, and he stumbles upon a music video uh, shoot for this band called something Nautilus. Nautilus. Mm-hmm. And they... Uh, kick him out when he walks in front of the camera and so he's goes to jail you know his his mom's mad at him tells him to go to to st petersburg to uh find his brother and make a life for himself so that's what daniel does he meets up in st petersburg has like some like a few different scenes that sort of like like can continue with the plot because there's like a music plot in the sense that he goes to a music store and tries to buy the music from the band that he accidentally walked in on the uh, music video for uh and then he like helps a german guy by stopping him from getting robbed by this like thug dude in a market and so the german guy is nice to him and there's like some kind of like unnecessary scenes there, but like I guess like German guy is like his mentor, and but eventually he decides what happens with the German guy. Um, then Neil goes and sees his older brother, who is now like this Russian mobster dude or assassin, really. Now he's not affiliated with the mob directly, but like works with the with the Russian mob to kill people for money. But unbeknownst to Daniel, his older brother is, you know, agitating the the mob. And so they, uh, because he's asking for too much money, they've like, they were going to set him up to kill him as well because he's getting too big for his bridges or whatever. And the mob guy is, doesn't like the disrespect, but you know, it's all shady. Like they don't, he doesn't say it to his face. He just plans to kill him later. So uh, his Daniel's older brother, realizing that you know he's probably being being set up to be killed, sends his younger brother to do the latest hit, um, and is uh, Daniel successful? And so he makes money and doesn't get caught. He's chased after by some goons, but gets away in this trolley car. The trolley car woman decides that like she thinks he's cute, and they like. Despite the fact that she, he like jumps in this car and is getting shot at by goons. Yeah, you know they they start a relationship. She's actually married. Um, I'm starting to realize like there's a lot, lot stuff happens. It's really, it's really busy film. Definitely a busy film. Like I, I, I don't like. I guess I'm. It feels like I'm doing like just like a, like a scene to scene sort of thing here. Is that really worth doing, or should I just? We can also talk in broad. I think there's like a lot of the scene to scene, which is worth talking about. And especially in the early film, I think this is really, mm-hmm. really worth going over because a lot of these points here are really important later on. We can, I think like the latter half of the film we can we can cover in broad points. Okay. Um, is there anything I've missed so far that you mm-hmm. wanted no, to? No, that's, that's it. I mean, there, there is. Well, when he first arrives in Petersburg, he's just kind of wandering through a, he's wandering around town. I think this is right before he meets the German. And uh, a girl comes up to him and mm, takes right. his headphones off and tells him that his music is awful. And if he gets some money and comes back, she'll buy him some weed. <laughs> and, and she becomes important later on. But yeah, otherwise everything is everything's there. Yeah, there's that 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 scene happens. It it doesn't really like make any sense initially. And I also was kind of confused as if the trolley lady was different than that the the drug lady. Um, spoiler alert. That lady likes doing drugs. <laughs> Spoiler alert, the girl who went to a stranger is like, if you bring some money, I can get us some weed and maybe some LSD. A little bit into drugs. <laughs> I thought you were going to Spoiler alert, they aren't the same person. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't the same person. Uh, continuing on with that. Uh, so, yeah, he gets some money, goes out and like wants to 
spend his money and like do his thing so to speak i honestly forget how it gets to the the second hit i guess i can i can kind of um, pick up if you want to. yeah go for it okay so after the first hit he gets shot when you're entering the escape the reason why it goes successful is because the 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 henchmen are looking for daniel's brother who goes by the name the tartar um and so they only realizes him after he actually kills uh, the chechen his target so he he gets away but he is shot in the process and the, the trolley woman, her husband's in jail, so they end up kind of staying together. And um, a lot of the film is now when he's away from his brother. So his brother's trying to contact him because there's another hit. And again, his brother is is like, hey, you did this last one. That's really impressive. I need you to do this, this next hit for me. Please. Uh, my life is on the line. Yeah, exactly. But Daniel is kind of doing his own thing. He's staying with... Um, the tram operator, I think his name, oh gosh, I think her name is Svetlana. Uh, let me just quickly consult my, um, Sveta. Okay. That's, okay. Yeah. Her name's Svetlana. So she, they're like hanging out. Um, they decide to go watch, uh, watch a concert, at which point Daniel runs into the drug girl again. And we really need to figure out her name. And that makes Sveta a little bit, uh, a little bit jealous. When, and that, that kind of goes on. Um, it, there's a little bit of a dynamic of Daniel spending time with Sveta and also going off to spend time with the. I mean, I'm just gonna pull up the. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got the Wikipedia page on the other end. Yeah. Um, it, let me it, just quickly. I, the dichotomy there is it's sort of like. Cat. Her it just Kat. seems like. Each character is like feeling like they're they're very one dimensional. Like Daniel is just like this sort of like. St. Petersburg is sort of a carnival of experiences in a really kind of strange way where like he just kind of shows up and goes through like a bunch of different emotions of like, okay, I'm going to do drugs with this girl and have weird experiences with them. That's like very young and youth and like rebel, but like in a meaningless, aimless way. And then you have the older Svetlana who's like, you know, to him, he's like, I'm a hero. She makes me feel good. Like mm-hmm. oh, I'm fighting bad guys, but really um, she is only, being put into harm's way because of Daniel, and Daniel may have like beat up her ex, her abusive husband, but like she she like like do, do we just get into it? like she is assaulted by the goons? Oh, of... wait, I, oh, let's get to that in a second. So, or, okay. or, or, it's like just broadly so we can lead into it. Daniel spends time with Cat, ends up sleeping with her as well, and then finally Daniel is brought back into the fold. So he, he does another hit, but while he's out uh, taking the place of his brother, and important things happen there, but that's not really necessary. We can get into it later if, if we need be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the mobster ends up tracking down Sveta, and he has his goons assault and sexually assault her. So mm-hmm. when Daniel comes back, he finds out what happened, and he's not super, not super empathetic, but makes a plan to basically kill the mobster and goes and, and gets some gets some weaponry and tracks down his brother, who has at this point been taken captive by the mobster. And then he, and like the biggest action scene in the movie, ends up walking through the apartment, basically executing them all one by one. And all the all the tough mobsters are reduced to, you know, gibbering children, essentially. He's, he's very prepared. Like that's, that's actually something we can get into later and in how even though he's, he's portrayed as a country bumpkin, that's a contrast with mm. how his character acts, which is very, very... <laughs> very very capable mm. he makes his own silencer for the first assassination when he buys a shotgun for an old man he makes his own ammunition for it um and he ends up killing them all and um forgives his brother and he tries to go to he, he decides to go to moscow and tries to get Sveta to go with him but Sveta's husband has just returned and she he shoots her husband and then she basically is like you're uh blames him for what's happened to her and she goes to attend to her husband who's been shot and he decides to leave mm. And then he goes and hitches a ride to Moscow. There's a couple other things happening, but yeah, that's the it's the broad the, the broad strokes broad broad strokes of the film. Yes. So the reason I, I it, might, it might seem a little overkill to do point by point, but there's like a lot to get into here, and I think it's if you have not seen the film, uh, I think it's mm-hmm. good to have kind of a, a brief idea of a lot of what's happened. And even if you have now heard that, never seen the film, that doesn't diminish the film at all. It's still like an incredible film for so many different reasons. Ten thousand dollars was the budget. Yeah, generally speaking. Yes, very very low budget film. All the people who were in the film were already established actors. They were paid no money to act in this film. They did all their shooting basically on the streets of Saint Petersburg. They didn't have any filming permits really. They were just finding places to film and doing it. So, 
it's kind of incredible what you can do. And they, even the band Nautilus, which the movie said features pretty heavily, um, that that's an actual band and they're fairly famous. And <laughs> so it's pretty incredible that they were able to get that for, you know, a ten thousand dollar film. I think film. it's just Nautilus. I think it's something Nautilus. Or is it literally the whole name? It's Nautilus Pompilus. Oh, uh, I see. Nautilus Pompilus. Yeah, it's a full. Yeah, so almost all the film, almost all the music in the film was done by them. This was their actual last record, strangely enough. Really? Huh. Yeah, this was their career highlight. Well, that's a hell of a way to go out. Um, in terms of the film, I I definitely enjoyed it. It's not a slow film. You you're kind of like they they move the pacing is nice. I mean, some of the scenes seem a little f- like like very. It doesn't hold up, obviously. Maybe compared to like more like higher budget, you know, really well scripted and well written stuff of today that like we're exposed to in America. But these guys made this movie in a very like kind of a strange time in their culture, and you know, they hit the points well. Like what they're trying to say, it, it is easily acknowledged and so i definitely think the film really capitalizes that i did also want to mention um we were if you're probably gonna say this anyways cameron but daniel supposedly so he's actually was in the military um during the soviet union is that what they say or is it during well post-soviet era he was fought in chechnya it sounds like he opens Mm. the film when he's in the middle of being demobilized from being a soldier and i think this comes out in the when does this movie come out Came out in 1987, so assuming that they're setting in a con- concurrent time period, he would have fought in the first Chechen War, or theoretically yeah. could have. He was in the he was in the right era for it. He gets asked about it a lot, and he always keeps it like very like vague. Like they never, I'm sure that's a trope probably for Russian men talking about their military experiences. They never talk about it. <laughs> it also plays into the dynamic between Daniel and his brother which I want to get into at some point. Why don't we get into it right now? Actually, I want to quickly make a point about um, Brat and Petersburg real quickly mm. because Petersburg is is my one of my favorite cities in the world. Cameras um, lived there for a I have, time. I did live there for a few months, and it was a really fun time. And before, and when I was watching this film, I couldn't help but think of this, this meme I saw when I was in Russia, and I sent it to Harry, and it's not as funny when I describe it, but basically it's a... It's, uh, uh, it's an image, and it's got four images on it. And the top it says Peter, which is the Russian word for not the word for Petersburg. Uh, in, in Russian parlance, you call Petersburg Peter. And uh, top left, you see like this really dark, foreboding city. And uh, above that says Petersburg through the eyes of Gogol, who was a a writer in the 19th century uh, and who had like a very wrote very atmospheric, dark pieces and had a very negative view of Petersburg. Uh, to the right of that, oh, you got <laughs> yeah, a bunch of people dancing a ball and you have through the eyes of Tolstoy and Tolstoy wrote most of mostly about um, the aristocracy of Russia. So mm-hmm. it's a very high society kind of life that he tends to write about. And bottom left, you have a picture of the Admiralty's uh, spire from Petersburg, which is a really famous architectural piece. And you've got through the eyes of Pushkin and Pushkin was um, considered the, like the first novelist of Russia who really revolutionized literature and also wrote a lot of poems about the architecture of the city. His most famous is the Bronze Horseman, um, for which you, there's a statue. Uh, a lot about that. And then finally, my favorite, bottom right hand, you just have like a series of dumpsters. And it says, through the eyes of Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. And Dostoevsky wrote very harshly about Petersburg and crime and punishment. He had a very, uh, a very negative view of the people in it and its dirty nature and it smelled and <laughs> it's it's really fun to get into. Crime and Punishment's a great book. Do you think that people are like, do writers like that still exist where like they're very like just openly like disgusted by their society, but like they're well yes. received in any way? Yes, definitely. Because I feel like. <laughs> Especially in Russia. <laughs> definitely. Oh, oh, I'm sure in Russia, but like. In the United States, I feel like people don't like, like on a physical level, like maybe people don't like America politically or culturally, but here, here I don't think you see a lot of reading of like, oh, hmm. everyone is a whore or everyone is a, right. you know, ugly, disgusting monster, mm-hmm. you know, I, depraved. Depra- <laughs> well, I think you could maybe if you're like reading, you know, like some white supremacist literature, you'd probably find a lot of, mm. of that kind of rhetoric about cities. And to be fair, Dostoevsky, although he was involved in a lot of socialist movements in his youth and was actually sent to prison and almost executed for his involvement in that, later turned to a very, you could call it apolitical, but I guess it was somewhat um, somewhat uh, centrist or 
like removed from the process of being involved in politics and was very focused on religion in later years. So um, mm. maybe you could, um, and not that I'm saying Dostoevsky is in the line of like white supremacists, that's obviously not true, but uh, Dostoevsky had mm-hmm. um, uh, very strong views about, you know, the place of like religion. Although I think really, I think that undersells some because although if you look at crime and punishment, like if you were to diagram the basic plot, it sounds it sounds kind of stereotypical, but that's with the eyes of someone who's looking at this in 2020, not the eyes of looking at someone who wrote that. I don't know when he wrote that book in the late, uh, late 19th century. Uh, like the fact that uh, one of the main characters, one of the most redeeming characters is a prostitute. Um, today, that's like, you know, I roll my eyes like, okay, Frank Miller. But um, and like the late, <laughs> the late 19th century for someone who's very religious, that's actually quite an interesting plot point that like typically respected members of society are the ones that he has the most disdain for in the like the underclass of people are the ones who have mm. like sometimes the most um the most um upright standing but uh <laughs> so classic. i think that all like this are this are like classic forms of russian literature and petersburg reflects back a lot of what writers want and i think brat is so cool because it reflects it, it it doesn't reflect so much like the view of a writer so much as it reflects the view of a generation because in this movie it's entirely shot in sepia and actually if you go to petersburg it's it's really quite a colorful city all the buildings are painted <laughs> pastel colors pink yellow um it's it looks nicer in the winter but in this film it's all sepia <laughs> and everything is is yeah. dark and it's dirty and it's dingy not a single clean window in the whole film and it reflects like the the attitude towards russia in the 1990s that this is like a place that's falling apart you have a lot of homelessness, which in the Soviet Union, they said there was no homelessness. It's probably not true. But there was a much, inarguably, there was a much greater social net for people. And it was mm. easier to acquire access to a home. And if you had a home, you were not going to lose it. Eviction was not a really, was not a problem. And so the mm-hmm. suddenly having, you know, mass homelessness, like in this case, you've got ne- the, the Nimitz, the German, who is living with other uh, Nimitz, Nimitz, other Germans in like a little, in a graveyard, basically. That's showing off society as that's now suddenly has migrant workers, transients, um, although they had that before. But now it's being portrayed for the first time, really. And you've got like teens mm-hmm. who are walking around and like just, they got no purpose in life. They just like, there is no purpose in life. <laughs> what are they going to do? Get a, get a job as a business person, you know, get involved in gangs. Uh, so she just wants to smoke pot and do LSD and go to, go to raves. You know, why not? And she doesn't have any greater aspiration in life towards that. She's really apathetic towards the world. Um, cat, I mean, mm. and every character in this is like, I think a really interesting reflection. Sveta is the reflection of someone who's like, I think they're trying to go for like like the Russian woman. She's long suffering. Her husband is abusive. Um, she's just trying to make make money, um, exist in the society. And in the end of the film, even though she turns down Danielle's offer, she kind of sits down and cries. And I think that is because she wants a different life, but for whatever reason, she's unable to take it. And you could do a lot of analyses of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so every character, all the all the settings, this Petersburg is really a reflection of a generation. I think it's really cool that it, it's mm-hmm. so, that it, it feels real because it, you know, it was all shot in the streets of St. Petersburg. If you've been there, you'll recognize a lot of the areas of Daniel just walking around. Um, and it really feels like a lived experience. It's quite the film on $10,000. Yeah. And I'm sort of excited to see what the second one is. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's wild. Cause isn't it also mostly, so like the main actor is also considered like the director or is he just, the writer or like executive producer what was his uh well the Daniel? the it was directed by alexei uh balabanov who was different from sergey bodrov jr both very uh, in- interesting people I, I i'm not familiar with sergey bodrov's greater oeuvre um actually both sergey bodrov i mean the junior uh sergey bodrov mm. jr's father was also a well-respected um person in film so there's a there's there's a line all very famous people. Wow. So, um, do you want? Do you want to get into talking about Daniel and his brother? Because uh, that, that was something we kind of touched on earlier, and you kind of want to talk about. I don't, like what I, I kind of want to hear what you think think about them. Like first of all, because I, I know that I have like a certain perspective and what I think about them, but that's also been kind of um, like in terms by, of what specifically, just like because uh, so much of the film is about their relationship. In, in even though it's not like most of the film, they don't have a relationship for most of the film 
their archetypes interacting mm-hmm. in the fact of the lack of their interaction and the way they don't interact, I think also yes. tells a story. Totally. Uh, so it's sort of like, would you say they're, they're a generation apart or would you say they're like young and like they're similar in age? I think, I mean, I think he's older, but not that much older. Mm. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, in terms of their, their relationship, it seems like it's definitely like uh, Danielle's older brother, you know, is a semi-successful hitman. Mm-hmm. He's known as the Tartar, and you know he makes good money. Considering he, I mean, obviously he's making decent money as an assassin, um, and he's living like this very sort of bougie life in response to this sort of uh, job, which is kind of strange to think about because you don't really think of assassins as being like these rich, you know, aristocratic type people, and they they were obviously not really, but they. They had gained all this new economic freedom through like this very like amoral and like like strange like to be accepted, but it, I guess it was this thing that was super common within the time period is it's just people were making lots of money in sort of the new mob uh era of Russia that was kind of full of corruption and full of sort of just like mm-hmm. shady deals and money exchanging hands for shady reasons um and so danielle is is sort of like this like newer um sort of like fresher take in a sense like he hasn't been jaded yet and he comes to the city and and the german guy actually mentioned something specifically about saint petersburg but i don't oh the quote is it head. I'm sure. is it um what's good for the russian is death for the german <laughs> oh that's that's a classic but i think there were there's there's another okay. quote about how like the film says that, like the German guy says like it sucks the energy out of people of St. Petersburg the city sort of mm. you know like it's an evil and they become weak mm-hmm. <laughs> city the city's a frightening force and the bigger the city the stronger it is it sucks you up only the strong can pull through anyway um, that seemed like some heavy-handed sort of symbolistic purpose. I, I never, I didn't fully break it down uh, in my head, but um, he mentions it multiple times. Or like they, it's like be in the beginning, he, the German guy tells him, and then Danielle brings it up at the very end of the movie when he like decides to leave and he gives the money mm. to um, the German guy because he's going to Moscow. Uh, but is that, does that fit your sort yeah. of what you were looking yeah, for no, in terms of discussion between I think two? I think that's interesting because what I was going to say is like a lot of what my perspective of the two is kind of informed by archetypes in Russian literature. So I think it was really interesting to get a fresh mm. perspective. And I really like that kind of approach because I, I hadn't really thought about it as a generational divide. But you're right. There is a lot to be said about um, because the, his older brother really despite all his appearances is not as successful as as everyone believes him to be but daniel is able to Mm -hmm. like by virtue of even though no one expects much of him is actually quite capable so i think there's something to be said for the fact that um (laughs) you know his older brother uh being kind of like the old guard who is successful but that is kind of running dry and now daniel is like His mother in the beginning of the film, not to interrupt, yeah, no, much, go for but it. like like war, like makes a big statement about oh, he's the only hope I have. The older brother, I forget his name, but like let's just say he's a Victor or something. Like Victor's, I, I, I think, think you're actually, I think you're right. I think it's yeah, it's Victor. <laughs> yeah, uh, Victor is like this. Like she like totally like adores him, and like uh, it's because she's her husband has died, and so it's just her and um, her two sons who. One is Victor has now moved to to St. Petersburg and is like has money, obviously, and so she can see that he has money, and so she feels like she's he's successful. But it is a very much a sort of false thing because he's completely vulnerable to the sway of the mob and mm-hmm. to the sway of like like he he makes like this big decision at the beginning of the movie to ask for more money. You know, he does. Oh, I do a good job. You should pay me more. Mm-hmm. But like this big move, you know, he's a complete coward after that. You right. Know, and like doesn't actually, he gets Daniel to do all of the jobs because he doesn't want to die. Mm-hmm. 
You know, like even though he's an assassin, he's afraid of death. Yeah. Which maybe there's some I I know that's that's exactly that's exactly what I was thinking when I was watching this film because uh, like to my mind Daniel is like the avatar of the elemental earthy like good Russian good Russian man and uh <laughs> Victor is like a representation of kind of a I don't know if there's a specific archetype but kind of like I, I guess as you put it, it's almost like a representation of an old guard because their relationship is basically like it's an inverse of expectation to reality. So Victor mm. is seen he's the golden child of the family when um his when their mother takes out like an old album at the beginning. She's got a lot of pictures of Victor and mm-hmm. is basically chastising Daniel because he's just gotten home from after being arrested. And she says, you should be more yeah. like your brother. You know, he's like, he's such a good boy. You're good for nothing. Yeah. And she's got pictures of, of, yeah. of um, Victor in the army. He looks very proper. And she says, telling you, like, go, go to Petersburg. Be like your brother because he's successful. He earns a lot of money, which is what initially spurs Daniel to go to Petersburg. But when he gets there, the reality is that Victor, although he is quite wealthy, is not like a successful. He's my, he's successful. I think you can't argue that. He's got a lot of nice things, but he's also an assassin, which his mother doesn't know about. He is like on the verge of being killed by his own boss because he's asking for too much. Um, and throughout the film, he displays basically like, despite all his appearances, he's the tough guy of the two. He's like, I'm, I'm going to take care of these things. Um, he never actually does anything. He pays Daniel to do all the hits throughout mm. the movie. And, and so you see it actually at the end of the movie when the, uh, the mobsters thugs invade, uh, he she, like sits down and he just like breaks down and he cries and, you know, Daniel has to like come mm. over and like comfort him. And he's like begging for forgiveness because it was, it was Victor who essentially sold out Sveta and also Daniel to a certain extent. And Dan- Daniel's when, when the mobsters tell him that it was his brother who sold him out, he's basically like, yeah, I know. And he doesn't care. And so throughout the, the whole film, what you're seeing is Victor who is all image and people expect a lot of him, and mm. he like kind of fulfills that. And then you have Daniel, who people expect nothing from. They see him as a screw up, but he's constantly shown to be really, really capable and actually quite, quite good at almost everything he does. He's like, he's it, when he. It's a bit. Sorry, oh, yeah. I was just gonna say that. Like, you're making me think that like uh, the the narrative is a bit ridiculous mm. in a certain sense. Like, like I know that like. The, it's not completely like like worshiping the concept of Daniel because Daniel, mm. like it does legitimately cause this woman to get raped. They don't maybe make it seem like that's the yeah. the case, but like he he's just a violent dude who doesn't really care about people. He like shows that he does in a certain sense, but like the actual actions that he do just cause other people harm. Generally speaking, maybe most specifically with Svetlana, um, but. Yeah, I just feel like mm. as much as the movie sort of makes you want to like Daniel, I think that's not necessarily fair to actually yeah. who he is. He's just a, a kid. I think that's that's a really good point to bring up and like the reality situation because I, I think I think it is trying to sell you a narrative because um, he is like when he cares about the assassinations, he's really capable. He's able to make his own silencers. He's able to make mm-hmm. his own shotgun rounds. Um, he's, he's he's trying to be generally smarter than the people around him. Um, and even even mm. kinder than the people around him, he's he's guileless. He when like mm. when they invade an apartment looking for someone, he is constantly trying to keep the thugs with him from murdering unrelated people. And when they end up shooting someone, mostly because they're just the homies that he it's his band. Yeah, his favorite yeah, band. that's one of the the jokes of the film is that they almost end up like killing the, the lead singer for a band that the band the Nautilus that he really likes. Um, but even like there's a director who they end up accidentally pulling into this the wrong apartment. And he does his best to keep the guy from getting shot. And he like ends up developing an affinity with him. And even though he's got a gun to his head, he's really just like chatting with him about what it's like to be working in the radio. And he's really kind of enamored with him. And when he comes back and the thugs are about to kill the director, he ends up killing both of the of the guys and like takes care of the yeah. director and, and brings him home essentially. And uh, and that's oh, I was just gonna say that brings up another point about how like it's, the, everything is sort of like to make. Daniel kind of feels smug in a way because because mm. the director is actually the guy at the beginning of the movie that yells at him to get arrested. Yeah, it's the same director because Nautilus is this is the band, and so it's sort of like, oh well, I now I'm the cool guy yeah. now, Mr. Director. Well, like I've got all the power. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, but if it had never 
in the film, it never affects Daniel. Even though he is like constantly shown to be smarter and capable, the way they portray him never mm-hmm. changes. He continues to be this kind of guileless, kind of um, kind of kind guy who just wants to help people. And like that, that should be contrasted with like what exactly that means in this context, because it should be known that he is <laughs> Daniel is a racist, or at least mildly so. Um, mm-hmm. He the the German his name's his name's Hoffman, but he only continues to refer to him as Nemitz, just German. Um, and when he first meets Hoffman, he he asks him like, yeah. "What kind of name is Hoffman? Are you a Jew?" And the guy says, "No, I'm a German." And he says, "Oh, good. I'm not not terribly fond of Jews." What's your name? Hoffman. Hmm. A Jew. German. Uh, I don't like Jews very much. In Germans, Germans, they're fine. What's the difference? What's it to you? Um, and he, he is, he mm. does exhibit like racist tendencies and, and it should be noted, but that's not portrayed as a negative thing in this film, which I think goes speaks no. to a deeper underlying thing about Russian society and racism, but that's a discussion for yeah. another day. Um, I, I think like you're coming at this with a very critical perspective and I think that's correct. I think that's, that's a really important thing to bring. It's correct. No, I, yeah, I think be critical. Yeah, though you should be like, critical of, because the, the film is trying to sell you a narrative that, Daniel Absolutely. is like the good elemental guileless Russian man. This is like kind of like the best version of, of someone you the can quintessential. be. But that doesn't and, and it, it, I don't think it intentionally undersells the fact that he is he is violent um, that he does do wrong things that his actions do negatively deeply impact the people in his life. Um, but it, it's not the movie is entirely concerned with that. It's it's concerned with the other features, and I think it's interesting to see what it mm. emphasizes and what it de-emphasizes. And so I think it's kind of a morality play in that sense. And I think if you ask them that, they'd probably deny that. Um, I think the that aspect is unintentional. But I do mm. see a lot of a sort of something in in the way that the two brothers are treated in their portrayal that kind of begs mm-hmm. to be interpreted. Just a really quick, just because I thought it was maybe interesting. Even in the first scene of you meeting the brother, he like is immediately like, "Who are you?" You know, like he's not. Oh yeah. Confident. It's it's like totally like this sort of like, I I he already kind of knows he's mm. being hunted or whatever. And well, so, when like, when Daniel first comes to to um careful. to uh, Victor's apartment, Victor's house. Victor holds him at gunpoint before he realizes who he is. Yeah. It's it's just like such a strange disconnection with like you know he's incredibly afraid, so to speak, right? Because he knows that he's like a bad person. You know that's a kind of a bigger mm-hmm. thing is like the sort of the acknowledgement of like you know like okay maybe he doesn't know he's a bad person but he knows that people are after him and that he's like not right. safe. So which is why he sends his brother constantly be exactly exactly and so that that kind of knowledge. But, like, the sort of, at the same time, lack of, like, really reflection is really interesting because he doesn't think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm causing harm or I'm, you know, like, putting my my own brother at risk of death. Like, that's, you know, like, that never, like, really comes to him as being the issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, he obviously feels guilty later about it, but, like, he willingly is, like, just money sort of, I think maybe there's a point of the how, like, it doesn't matter because money, you know? Right. Like, if I can get the money, then I can be whoever I want to be or seen as maybe the good guy, mm-hmm. even though. And I think Daniel has the same or like the, the the movie in general sort of has a similar narrative of like a lot of the ways. I don't think Daniel's a good guy, but like what's shown is his ways of being a good guy is mostly just about money. Stuff. Right. And giving money away. Right. I think it's so important. At yeah. the end of the film, when he goes to Moscow, he goes to Nimitz and he gives him most of his money. And he also goes to Kat, uh, the girl who he um, mm-hmm. did LSD with and ends up giving her um, a lot of money as well. And um, she, <laughs> I think that it's also something that would be interesting to integrate her character arc or lack thereof, I guess. And she mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't really care. <laughs> he tells her, like, I'm going to go to Moscow. And she's like, basically like, okay, bye. And I think it's like her actual response is she's basically, you know, tells him to leave and he gives her some money. And she's like, mm-hmm. oh, cool. And then takes the money and, and does, then he leaves. What characters really even have character arcs in the film, would you say? I hmm. maybe Svetlana. I think I, I maybe I maybe I'm gonna take a weird position here. I don't think there is anyone who has a character arc in this film. I think they're all flat characters. 
And I think what the film is exactly. is doing is it's not trying to develop these people. It's trying to take people who are fully developed and reveal them to you. Because um, mm. like in the same way that I think it's, I actually think it's an effective technique that you have Daniel. He's like, he's basically like, he's a blank slate. He he does not mm. really do things on his own for the most part. He's reacting to the people around him. And people around him are really the ones yeah. who drive the story. And it's his interactions that slowly reveal them to him. Like his, he's kind of enamored with Kat. Um, he likes spending time with her. Mm-hmm. And it's not until the end of the film that he realizes that he's really just a way to get money for drugs for her. And she doesn't care about him as a person. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's kind of apparent all along. The first time they show up, she's just mm-hmm. like, give me some money. Let's buy some drugs. Uh, but it, it, it is like kind of realizing that the characters are who they say they are in a certain sense. Sveta, yeah. uh, I mean, maybe to the extent that anyone has a character arc, I think it might be Sveta, um, who has someone who mm-hmm. she makes actual choices, whereas the rest of them, um, Dan- Daniel is like reacting and he does things. But I think to the extent that anyone makes a real choice, it's Sveta when she chooses to stay with her husband over going with Daniel, which I'm yeah. radical position. That's the only choice made in the film, really, <laughs> which makes her perhaps the only person who yeah. had an arc. Which is not a not, it's the not only, a bad thing to not have an arc. I think it's a, I think it's a choice, and I think this choice in, in this film was actually effective. Yeah, the only theoretical reflection, in a sense, and it's a really sad one in the sense that like she just is like, all men are don't really care about me personally. They just care about having sex with me. So it's like I just have to pick whichever version is the least suffering, you know, the least painful. And it's like despite the fact that her her husband is abusive you know like at no point does the movie really care you know like like obviously they make a sort of like daniel seem like he's like oh i'm gonna get revenge but like he's not like he didn't protect her from being Mm -hmm. raped he he didn't uh he he brought that into her life you know and sort of didn't really like do anything about any of the sort of conflicts that were in in existence and so why would she want to go with him yeah. you know like why would going to moscow with some 19 year old boy be a good decision <laughs> when you're just trying to survive in such a toxic state that's a really i, I didn't think about that but that is really interesting that um and then when you when you say that actually she's the only person who calls him on anything in the whole film and at the end when she mm. he's like come on like Sveta, let's let's go to moscow and she's basically tells him that he's he's violent and he's not in really improving anything and this exactly. is these are you know this is like things you've said i guess she's the only character in the film who really um voices any objectives and i don't think i don't think the film is using her to really make a point to him i think i don't think that, that was something that they intended to use as like a focal no. point but i do think that which is why i have a lot of issues with the movie itself yeah, well, there's a deeper discussion to be had about racism and sexism in Russian society as a whole. Yeah. Oh, but that's a, that's a bigger, bigger issue. Um. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we're almost at an hour, so like, yeah, <laughs> we, we've we begin to yeah, begin to begin to wrap. But final thoughts in the film. I <laughs> problematic fave. Uh, no, I, I I think Brat is a really great time capsule of the 1990s, which really encapsulates a lot of the mm. viewpoints of people about their own society or Russian people about their own society at the time and is able to mm. successfully convey a really dingy view of their life and also mm. really creates, like, is able to have characters. Tells, tells I, I would almost call it a classic Russian story because you're able to have, oh, like, totally. that, that guileless. He's, he's, like, he's like a knight, Daniel. Um, and I don't mean to say mm. that like he's perfect in, in like every way. I mean that he is portrayed in this film like um, someone who is he's not out for himself. He's really out for other people. He's the prodigal son, you know, classic story arc, male, young, no personality, yeah. but morally clear yeah. <laughs> is really what it is. It's not like he's not good, I don't think. But like you can sort of like a lot of men men could maybe like kind of see something in them mm-hmm. or like dream about like, oh, I wish I got to go and, you know, get revenge or fight for good things in, in, in a sort of very like not accurate sort of very like delusional sense. Mm-hmm. Cause Daniel, all of his qualities are incredibly delusional in terms yeah. of actual positive things he's putting out to the world. But like, he seems like a badass and the movie, mm-hmm. you know, 
I think if it had bad action sequences, we would never watch it. Like, it wouldn't be good at all. But because they do a decent job mm-hmm. with the action sequences, I think it will be remembered as sort of like this kind of momentary, like, it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if it's not great, it worked. It worked. And I think that's actually an interesting thing that you bring up that he's a blank slate because uh, as you're saying that, I, I was thinking... You've said that too, buddy. <laughs> um, he, he never... D- he do, never does act violence, which I think is, it, this is a deeper discussion, like the role of violence in Brat. Um, he only mm-hmm. does violence once for like self-interested. I mean, I guess all of them were in a way self-interested, but you know, he, he kills the Chechen, which he was paid to do. And I think you could say that that was like his main, like self-interested violence because after that he does, he mm-hmm. threatens, he, he, he slightly beats up Svieta's husband, later shoots him um, and then kills the two thugs who are about to kill the, the Moscow radio director which are not the, the Petersburg, mm-hmm. the, I think it was Radio 1, which I think is really interesting that he only after the initial action is, or and also finally saving his brother from the, the mobsters. So he is only shown doing violence as sort of a, a precaution, like a defensive measure, which I think is an interesting portrayal in that he is portrayed as a badass, but he's also portrayed as, a, as someone who doesn't seek out violence. Um, oh yeah. Also, he defends the German. I don't know if I agree with you. I think I think I have to call that really? out. Really? Okay. Bit. I don't think any of it is defensive. It's almost all like he goes out and shoots those people. Like right. he's not personally defending himself. But he, I think, he's not doing this out of like a sense of self-interest. He 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 defends the German at the beginning mm. of the film and beats up the guy. He thinks he's he goes and saves his brother. He saves the director. He thinks he's de- protecting Sveta. He thinks he's protecting the Moscow director. So I think your your perspective that. Um, it, it is not as magnanimous as it seems. Is is a, a good way of approaching it, but I also think that the way they're trying to portray it is that he is not. Mm-hmm. He, he from his perspective. Well, that's the two things. things. Brought as they're trying to portray themselves and portray the film mm-hmm. and what at least we're naturally thinking they want us to think mm-hmm. versus what we actually think. What they in terms of what they gave right. us. Um, because of our own understanding of actual reality versus what movies portray, because. Either they can portray them incorrectly in our minds, and we think we think that that's annoying, or they portray them too realistically, and then that is like it's this mm-hmm. whole really kind of interesting thing that is a completely separate topic. But yeah, movies. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the narrative. That's it's it is like every other movie trying to sell you on a version of reality that that comes from the director's mind, and um, I think mm-hmm. I think the narrative is interesting for narrative sake at least i think it's interesting to see how they portray yeah. themselves oh totally it is absolutely as you've said an encapsulation of the time period and like a very easy way for an a for a western person to sort of get a peek at it you know like really this is just the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. in terms of russian culture and russian <laughs> history but um totally like a great wave if you if you personally never um experienced any form of russian um filmography like it has lots and lots of rust or western influence or just like maybe i shouldn't say influence but like they remind there it it is within the the same Mm -hmm. umbrella of experiences like there's like the action shots and the you know the different sort of there's jokes it's not it's like kind of funny too and there's all like it, it, it is actually still like a you know an experience for someone to watch and eat popcorn and, and enjoy yeah. I, I would think it's mostly that or like that's kind of what maybe it had many intentions mm-hmm. but i think at the end of the day especially with the like the sort of actiony vibe that the film has i don't think it's trying to be a super artsy mm-hmm. or super like philosophical or deep at all <laughs> but it does managed to do that just because russia in itself as a culture is so interesting <laughs> and strange prone prone to a lot of long thoughts uh yeah no i think that's absolutely i think that's a great way to end it um a lot just last thing i'm gonna say if you're interested in learning more about this time period I, <laughs> i'm not gonna say too much but <laughs> just in terms of other literature you might want to read um generation p by um victor Pelevin is a really interesting book about basically the same time period same subject about um, the clash between Western and, and Russian culture. Um, the Funeral Party by Ludmila Ulitskaya, which is a fantastic perspective because it's from Russian expats in New York at the mm-hmm. time of the 1992 August coup. And then finally, most of, it's like anything Zakhar Pilepin has ever written really conveys. It's like this film, <laughs> gems over. It, like, it turns it up to like 11 where 
Um, I think the most popular English book of Sakhar Prilepin is, is Sankhya, which is about a young man who deals with the same kind of um, same kind of things as this film, aimlessness. But he's also like more violent, less intelligent, and that's portrayed as a good thing. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot to be. Mm. I guess it should be known that Sakhar Prilepin is a national Bolshevik. He's anti-Russian state, but he's also he's also was like a special forces officer. He's currently fighting in Ukraine for Russia. So he's a complex guy, very wow. nationalist, uh, very kind of pro-violence. So <laughs> really Sounds interesting. Sounds kind of Yukio Mishima. Like, yeah, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> uh, I guess like the main difference between him and Yukio Mishima is that he's actually he was. Probably did a lot of shady things in Chechnya as a, he was a Svetsnaz soldier there or as a part, part of a special unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he got involved with the National Bolsheviks in Russia. He's been arrested a lot. He's been in a lot of Russian prison and now he's back in Ukraine fighting. So he actually has a lot of combat experience, which is unlike Yukio Mishima yeah, wanted yeah. to aspire to that. Yukio Mishima is like, yeah, it's like an artist who wishes they were a warrior, uh, like in the army kind of mm-hmm. thing. And then there's like the the army dude who wishes he was a poet. I don't know. It's kind of the many different, we all wish we were someone else. Yeah. He, he's, he's very interesting. I, I like his writing a lot, <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so that's, that's mm. all I have to say. If you want to like learn more about that period, I think those are great places to start. Um, but we've been talking about oh, this yeah. for a while. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, we talked over each other, but yeah, thank you all for listening. This has been our mid roll lives. Definitely more of a, like a video essay sort of experience. Or maybe just sort of a discussion. So we're still developing this idea, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and, and next episode, I don't even know what we're talking about. We don't plan at all. But not yet. But I, I have some. I have some ideas. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Cameron has ideas. Okay. We'll see you guys next week if this episode is released. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. All right. Stop.